0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A brain drain is coming. By next year's presidential election, 24 Colorado counties will have a different clerk in charge than in 2020. Collectively, 300 years of experience lost, according to a new nonpartisan report. Today, we get perspective on that turnover. How much of it is about clerks beleaguered by the big lie? Also, Mesa County may lengthen term limits for some offices, including clerk. Then we take you into an Indian kitchen.
1: So when you are cooking, Indian cooking, you have to use engage all your senses. You know, you see the color,
0: you smell it. Through cooking classes, a home chef winds up teaching about identity and belonging.
1: I really feel great about the fact that I am able to share some
2: part of my culture. I'm Paulette, and I donated my car to CPR. I didn't want to have to go through the process of paperwork, you know, making sure somebody else is registering the car properly. And it was a way to give back that seemed like a better idea than trying to make a profit off of it. You know, we had been through a lot, me and that car. And after I donated, every time I listen, I feel like there's a little part of me in CPR. It's really easy to donate your car at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. A presidential election looms, and by this time next year, Colorado will have lost more than 300 years of collective experiencing managing elections. A recent nonpartisan report finds 24 counties will have a different clerk running their election than in 2020. Let's get some perspective from the Colorado County Clerks Association, whose executive director is Matt Crane. Hi, Matt. Good morning. How much should this turnover, this brain drain of experience,
3: concern us? It is It is concerning whenever we lose that much experience, especially coming into what many expect to be um, a very difficult 2024 election cycle. Some of those folks left um, natural attrition due to term limits, but then there's no question that some of the pressure from the big lie um, has has made it a much more hostile environment for election officials, and that impacted some people deciding to leave their uh, leave their office before maybe they would have otherwise.
0: Can you say more about what
3: they faced that would have driven them out? Sure. It's the whole the whole range from um, threats, intimidation. Um, to outright, uh, you know, death threats, the whole nine yards, doxing their information being put online, people showing up at their house, knocking on their doors, demanding to know about election fraud. It's, it's really a whole wide array of, of things that have happened to election officials.
0: Does that mean that people then who embraced the big lie succeeded to some extent? I mean, if they're
3: driving people out? Unfortunately, yes, um, you know, they have succeeded in that in that regard, which is unfortunate because all it does, and this is this it's it's really weird. you know they claim to be for election integrity, but all of their actions, whether it's pushing for terrible policy positions or forcing people out of the election industry, all they're doing is making our elections weaker. Um, And so that's, it's, it's something really to ponder, I guess.
0: And there was just a fragment of a sentence that I want to zoom in on, which is that you reflected or you uh, looked ahead to the next presidential election and you don't think it's going to be easy
3: to administer. No, we, we think that there's going to be a lot of outside forces again, you know, the, the people that are keep talking about the big lie and pushing that are still there. They continue to talk about those narratives and lie about what happens in our elections. And so we know that's not going to go away. We expect next year to be more contentious than 2020.
0: Oh, that's hard to hear as a journalist, as a,
3: as a voter. Why do you say that? Because again, some of the same players are still involved. They people that have been pushing the, the narrative of a stolen election for, for the last three years. They're still involved. They're still pushing it. They're still making money on it, right? The grift continues to happen. And so, you know, they they will keep going with it as long as they can. Do you have better tools this time around? We do have better tools this time around. I think that uh, we are more prepared for that kind of environment than we were coming into 2020, which is which is great. Okay. We spent a lot of time with these new clerks that have come in. Um, like as you mentioned, it's about a third of our clerks that are new across the state. We spent a lot of time with them, training them, getting them ready preparing them for what's to come next year. And certainly after what we saw with the Tina Peters fiasco, um, We have put much more of an emphasis on training our folks, making sure they're dotting every I, crossing every T, understanding these jobs so that when they get these questions, they don't fall prey to the lies and disinformation like Tina did. Tina Peters, former Mesa
0: County clerk, helped drive a lot of the conspiracies around Colorado's elections. I'll say that her trial is set for February on charges related to official misconduct and tampering with election equipment. How do you think that case might shape Colorado's views on election integrity?
3: Well, for people that are um, based in reality, I think that, you know, if she's held to account for what she's allegedly done, I think it'll be uh, it'll be a good day Uh, for for others, though, who hold her up as some kind of hero when she's not. Um, you know, if if she is held to account, then they will see it as, you know, big government coming after a, quote-unquote, whistleblower, um, which she's not—again, she's not a whistleblower. She broke—you know, it seems that she broke the law in numerous different ways. She is not a hero, not somebody to be celebrated.
0: You've called her a low-information clerk.
3: Yes. Um, she never took the time to understand her job, the rules, the laws around elections, or her systems. Previously, um, before 2022, if you were an election official, you had to be certified by the Colorado Secretary of State's office within two years. She never received that certification. It seems like she was more interested in winning a beauty pageant than being a serious elected official and policymaker. All of those things made her a prime target for these grifters and bad actors. When they look around the state and say, which clerk can we can we get to help us with this who doesn't really know uh, the job or the systems? Oh, It was, you know, it was Tina.
0: You are listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the head of the Colorado County Clerks Association. That's Matt Crane, ahead of next year's presidential election. But let's not forget that there's an election uh, just around the corner. In fact, today, well, gosh, this morning, I got my notification that the ballot is in the mail for the coordinated election here in 2023. I want to go back to the idea of the fact that clerks have tools they didn't have Mm -hmm. going into 2020. What what are some of those tools? You said training. Mm -hmm. I know that any number of clerks also brought in folks suspicious of the election system, invited them in to see the system, maybe even to volunteer. And as much as that might be the fox guarding the hen house, the idea was get people to understand that the
3: process is secure. Are you seeing more of that? Yes. And we've had great success with that, inviting people in to be election judges. Because again, it's not the clerk and recorder who, like the great and all powerful laws, is behind the curtain pulling all the, the levers. It's, it's, our citizen, uh, it's our citizens who serve as election judges. It's our ex Lodge members, our church or synagogue members. It's our PTA members. They're the ones who are verifying voter eligibility, checking the signatures on mail ballot envelopes, tabulating ballots. They're doing all that work. So when people have questions, or even if they were outright deniers, and they come in and serve as election judges, what we're finding is they say, wait, what I heard from so and so is absolutely not true. I've seen it. I've done it myself. And even if they get to a point where they say, okay, well, I trust it here in my county. Um, I still have questions about other places, but I trust here in my county. That's a big win for us. And then we will build it. We continue to build on that. Um, In terms of some of those other tools, we see a much greater focus on different uh, from different places. So whether it's the federal government, the state government Mm. working to do um, physical security assessments of our buildings, because we have to be concerned about security of our folks right now.
0: Right. Let let me be clear.
3: There is the question of election security.
0: Mm -hmm. And then there is the question of the security of elections (laughs)
3: officials. That's right. A different kind of election security. It is. Um, And it's, you know, in 2016, coming out of that, the focus was all on cyber because of what we saw foreign nation states doing in 2016. After 2020, that changed to, or it evolved more to physical security because of the threats uh, against election officials, not just in the office, but at their homes as well.
0: Given what new clerks might be in for. Why do they want this job?
3: <laughs> well, I certainly think if you're in elections for a long time, we've always we've always laughed and said those of us who do this, we have a serious masochistic streak. But I can <laughs> I I can tell you that there is no greater feeling for an election official than say next year the presidential election when you send your home team on election night after you've released the results, there's still work to do, but there's such an amazing feeling of satisfaction and civic pride because you've just helped facilitate one of our greatest rights as Americans, the right to vote. When you're a part of that, it is truly a tremendous honor um, and a great feeling when you, can, when you can do that. And that's what keeps bringing people back. Our democracy, our republic, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze. And this is our ability to help and serve. I,
0: I'm not sure if I'm asking this question seeking comfort from you, Matt, or, or just your worldview here, but do you think that the system in Colorado, the election system, the democratic system, can withstand the forces of the big lie
3: if you think that they'll be stronger this time around? I do. I do. I have great faith. I have great faith in you know, the American people, the citizens of Colorado, um, that, you know, ultimately good will prevail. We know that, you know, there are bad forces out there, bad actors who are trying to undermine this. They're not doing it for any higher calling for election integrity or cleaner elections. They're doing it to make money and for political power. And we are pushing back and we are winning in that war as, as we bring people in and as we talk about what really happens. Um, we are winning. Uh, we are winning that debate and we will we will be relentless um, and continuing to spread the truth about what really happens in our elections. Is part of your message here today, volunteer, be a uh, part of it? A hundred percent. Again, we want people to come in and be election judges, serve, help, be watchers, help a candidate come in and watch the process. There's lots of different ways. Contact your local clerk and recorder uh, to find out how you can help.
0: And I would encourage those most suspicious to be the ones to pick up the phone first. Please. Okay. That's, that's what we want. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Good to see you. Matt Crane leads the Colorado County Clerks Association. All right. Speaking of Tina Peters, voters in the county where she used to serve will decide this year whether to lengthen term limits on positions, including county clerk. Mesa County Commissioner Cody Davis says extending limits from two to three terms will reduce turnover in these professional positions. To get another four years out of someone who is an expert, who has the institutional knowledge, who has the experience, um, who has built up a staff underneath them, is going to provide
4: uncounted value to Mesa County.
0: The proposal applies as well to assessor, surveyor and treasurer. Now, because Tina Peters left after one term, the change could make it possible for her to run again and land three terms in the clerk's office. Commissioner Davis says he doesn't believe that's likely The voters in Mesa County are very reasonable, and I don't think we'll see someone like that back in office, hopefully anytime soon. And I think when Tina ran, she had a very different platform, and uh, she kind of got starstruck, if you will, and went down a road. I'm assuming she regrets going down. Mesa County Commissioner Cody Davis. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tucked away in the Denver Botanic Gardens, you can find a spiky tower of fire-colored glass rods a vivid artwork inspired by the state itself.
3: We've had it for nearly 10 years, and in that time it has been through truly every kind of weather condition that Colorado could throw at it. How does such a seemingly delicate sculpture stay safe? CPR's Eden Lane explored that question for Colorado Wonders, and you can read what she found
0: and see pictures at CPR.org. The trials seeking justice for Elijah McClain continue this week. The first Aurora officer who stopped McClain is in court. A jury convicted a fellow officer last week of third-degree assault and criminally negligent homicide. The head of the NAACP of Aurora is Omar Montgomery. Omar, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Soon after Elijah McClain died four years ago, You were asking for more information, trying to figure out what happened. What is it like to be at this point where a jury has assigned at least some responsibility to an officer whose conduct contributed to McLean's death?
4: Well, when I think about 2019, a lot was going on, and I had met Shenee McLean. His mother. Who lives through this, who has to relive through this, through every single trial, every single moment, every single newscast. So first, my prayers and thoughts go out to her. But asking, going from asking for more information and more accountability to where we are today, I want to thank the Attorney General for taking up the case because Adams County actually should have been the one taking up the case back when the evidence was fresh and back when, um, in my personal opinion, when they were doing the initial investigation, That's when they should have had the grand jury, and that's when the trial should have took place.
0: By way of background, the local DA decided not to proceed. Yes. It was only after protests, many, many demonstrations locally and, frankly, across the country, that the case came to the attention of the governor and of the attorney general, and it was the state AG who convened a grand jury. And so... um, well, I guess I, I'm very curious about your reaction to the first round of verdicts and whether, whether you feel safer in your own community.
4: First, um, the rural branch of the NAACP stands with Shanine McClain. And Shanine McClain feels like that's not justice. So for us, that's not justice. And at the same time, we have to continue to uh, push Aurora PD to make sure, as Derek Johnson said from our national office, to make sure no human being go through this again. And there are some things the city of Aurora can do to show that. And um, I hope they move forward in the near future in making those things take place.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a moment. But let me read the uh, comment from Derek Johnson, national head of the NAACP. He said last week, In reaction to the verdicts, being a black man in America is not a crime. Let me be clear, no person should ever face this level of violence for being black, especially from those who swore to serve and protect. And Johnson continued, Elijah McClain did not deserve to die that dreadful evening. His life symbolizes the innocence of countless black men throughout America who are senselessly targeted and subjected to harassment. So you said there are things that your community can do to improve policing in the sense of safety, uh, particularly of
4: people of color. Do you want to name a few of those? Well, first, let's probably change the terminology from policing to public safety. Okay. If the officer had walked up to Elijah from a public safety perspective, hey, someone made a phone call. We just want to check to make sure you're okay. Do you need anything? No, I'm just going home, as he stated right then and there. Elijah McClain would be alive today. If they had had taken the same approach as they did with the officer who was found drunk in the car, where they took a public safety approach where they didn't even check his blood, water, and all that stuff, and said, let's just check in on this officer to make sure he is okay. If they had had did the same thing with Elijah McClain, Elijah McClain would be alive today. So with that, some of the things the city of Aurora can do is first. Independent monitor. Hire an independent monitor now, today, tomorrow. (laughs) We need an independent monitor. And I know that they believe that the um, integrator who's over the consent decree acts as the independent monitor. But no, we need an independent monitor for the city of Aurora so that the people can have trust or begin to build trust in our public safety system. Let me unpack that just a little for the
0: uninitiated. So there is a consent decree. That yes. means there is oversight of the Aurora Police Department right now by the state attorney general. Yes, You, in fact, are uh, a member of a community advisory group yes. on the required police reforms underway in Aurora. So you're helping inform that when you say we need an independent monitor, that's no small thing because you have a role perhaps in helping shape that. Would that require a change to the city charter, a vote of the people? No. Could that be done in your estimation immediately then? It could be
4: done immediately. It could be done immediately. And as far as we're concerned, um, there was a vote that I was there for the city council encouraging them And every time there's a budget review, they keep pushing it back further and further. It is also part of the consent decree, but it's something that they need to put in place now and not continue to wait. Because every time there's an incident like the Jordan Richardson case and other cases that we may not know, we need an independent voice so that people can say, hey, if the independent voice say this, And then the investigators, uh, the internal investigation says this, then why is there a difference? And then them two can get together and figure out what's right.
0: I understand that it would take some funding from the city. Obviously, that's someone you'd want to be paying. The city manager told CPR last week that this would not be initiated until after the the consent decree is over. That's a five-year period. We can't but, wait that long. You, you, you think that those can happen
4: in tandem? I think they can happen in tandem because the person coming in needs to understand everything that's being implemented by the consent decree. If that person was to come in and be a part of what is taking place over the next two and a half years, I think it's two and a half years left, on the consent decree, then we could begin to develop a model that fits the city of Aurora. And that person will have a complete understanding of what's needed, the type of resources they need, type of investigative staff that they need. So then we're not starting from scratch. We're starting right now. The community group, I mentioned
0: that you are a part of plans to host an event next week, I understand, for anyone who's interested in Aurora's public safety reforms. Yes. Okay, we'll have a link to that at CPR.org. For the person listening, especially in Aurora, who is yes. motivated to help change the systems around public safety yes. versus policing, yes, I appreciate uh, your, the carefulness there of your vocabulary. But for someone who's interested in public safety, for the betterment of all people here, what
4: would you suggest they do? How should they direct their energy? Well, first, let's talk about the officer's who are doing an amazing job, who go out there, protect the community, those officers who will run into a burning building, run into a burning car, those officers just uh, not that long ago who helped the baby from choking. Those are the officers we need to support and share when good policing or good public safety is taking place. When you see something happen that's good, let's report it. And when you see something happening that's bad, please go to Integrature's uh, website where they have a place where the community can report abuse of power, or something they feel that didn't go right in our public safety system.
0: IntegraSure, just say what that is.
4: IntegraSure is the organization that was selected by the uh, city of Aurora, as well as the state attorney general, to carry out um, the consent decree. They're the people who hold everyone accountable in regards to making sure that everything outlined in the consent decree is fulfilled.
0: If you see something, say something. And you're saying, say something, if it's good, Say something if it's bad. Yes. That kind of reinforcement helps you believe.
4: Yes. And I'm going to tell you why. Because if we know what's good, that's good feedback. Someone says, hey, you know what? I was stopped by a public safety officer. You know what? It went well. Here are the reasons why it went well. Hmm. I was stopped by someone, and guess what? It didn't go that well. And here's the reasons why it didn't go that well. It's like anything else. It'll help with training, and it'll also help us figure out what's good, what's bad, as citizens on this board, and give that feedback to our public safety organizations.
0: Before we go, Omar Montgomery, head of the NAACP in Aurora, Colorado, you have uh, invoked Shanine McLean, Elijah's mother, Mm -hmm. uh, several times. Have you had conversations uh, in the broader community after the verdicts? What are you
4: hearing? I've had conversations with some um, um, close colleagues. And a lot of people are just trying to figure out what to do with a split verdict mm-hmm. many people believe that anyone who was there who didn't step up is accountable for the murder of Elijah McClain so there should have been two convictions and the officer this uh, and, and people are really looking at the um, trial that's coming up next This was the officer that started the chain of events that resulted in the murder of Elijah McClain. You'll be watching that closely and then the third trial of the paramedics. The third trial of the paramedics
0: as well. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate your insight. Thank you for the invitation. Omar Montgomery leads the Aurora, Colorado chapter of the NAACP. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a home chef who teaches about identity and belonging through cooking. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.
5: It's not only like paint
6: on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful.
4: Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art.
1: It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up.
4: Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts
0: with support from Janice Henderson Investors. Let's head into an authentic Indian kitchen in Colorado Springs, where Monica Selle teaches people to make samosas, curries, and other dishes. She also organized the spring's first Indian food festival this summer. And this is part of our occasional series, Entree, portraits of immigrants to Colorado who create food-related businesses, not just to survive, but to thrive. CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie spent an afternoon with Monica, her husband, Summit, and the sous chef, their
2: 11-year-old son, Augustia. You have a nice home. Walking into Monica Sully's kitchen, I find her at the kitchen sink.
1: But yeah, this is um, Indian classical music, and I like to play this when I have a cooking class. It's a nice
2: background. I notice a sign over the cabinets that says, This is our happy place. And it's clear that it is. It's where she'll teach an Indian cooking class for about two hours. Monica, Sumit, and Augustia all welcome me. (laughs) He's a good cook himself. Uh, Monica hands me a cold metal cup with a wide brim. It's a little larger than a shot glass, and it contains a drink familiar to her culture.
1: Growing up, we used to drink this a lot, especially during summers. You can say it's masala lemonade, Indian-style lemonade, but it has lots of um, Indian spices. It has cilantro, mint, tamarind, jaggery, you can say Indian brown sugar, lemon. It's a very integral part of the Indian street food menu.
2: That's today's focus. How to make the food you'd find sold on the sidewalks of India, handmade by vendors. You can buy these snacks along the noisy streets where cows and people intermingle. You pay less than a dollar and you leave with a hot, steamy snack inside an oily bundle of newspaper. What distinguishes street food from restaurant food is not only where you get it, but also the tangy taste. I find out in class that street food features a powdered mango spice called amchur, which we'll be using... Today, a social worker named Emily is here to learn to cook alongside me.
1: Hi, Emily. Hi. Yes.
2: Monica teaches at a nearby community kitchen and here at her house. She's leading us through three dishes today. A chickpea curry called chana masala, some potato patties called aloo tikis, and deep-fried potato and green pea pastries called samosas. Along the way, we're going to learn some of Monica's Indian techniques and the story of how she came to the U.S. As we'll find out, cooking is a great way to learn more about other people.
1: So we will do all the, you know, prep work. We will chop the veggies, dice them. We will need onions, tomatoes, ginger, garlic, and green chili. By the way, what is your spice level? Emily? Very mild.
2: Very mild. Yeah. Let's skip it.
1: <laughs> <Because> <laughs> this, this might be hot, right? You want to try?
2: Monica's 11-year-old son, Augustia, is the unofficial sous chef. Monica hands him a piece of chili pepper.
6: Even if he's feeling hot, he's going he like, he, he to pretend well. So. It is a little spicy.
2: Despite the heat, Augustia is having a blast.
1: Augustia, we will need help with the uh, potatoes.
2: He's using a peeler, but he's taking a little too much of the potato off for his mom's liking.
1: What, what, see, he's, he's peeling, and look what he's doing all the potatoes. It's like,
6: like one one billionth of the potato. That's barely any.
2: 164 billionth of the potato got wasted when he used the peeler. Is that what you said?
6: Literally, when I have six grains of rice left on my plate, she'd be like, Eat your food! <laughs> okay, go, I think that don't
2: go direction. He,
1: he can be a comedian, he will be roasting us like crazy.
2: Yeah.
1: He liked to roast Indian parents.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Once we. And by we, I mean the other student, Emily, and Monica's husband, Sumit, get done chopping garlic, onions, and ginger. The prep is done. And we start the actual cooking part. Up first is the curry dish you make in a saucepan on the stove. That's where we get one of the first lessons in traditional Indian cooking. You have to let the oil heat up just right, and then add the spices as the foundation for an authentic seasoning base.
1: Oil is infused with all these spices, and then we will add our um, wet ingredients like onions, ginger, garlic, and tomatoes, and that will make a nice uh, masala or the um, paste, you can say. Right, this is raw aryan aroma, right? You smell this, mm-hmm. right? So, when you are cooking, Indian cooking, you have to use. Engage all your senses. You know, you see the color. It's not translucent. You smell it. It's not ready. It's still very raw, right? Mm -hmm. And when we were cutting, you could feel the ingredients, right? So you are involving, you are engaging all the senses. Taste we will use in the end when the dish is ready.
2: (laughs) While it simmers, we get the patties going, the aloo tikis. To make them, we need lots of spices. Monica has a wooden box filled with spices that an Indian kitchen requires. Turmeric, garam masala, coriander, cloves, cumin seeds, and both brown and black cardamom seeds. The box is less than a foot square and a few inches deep with a dozen or so different compartments, each one with its own spice. It's a rainbow of earth tones. The whole box has a clear glass lid. This is another lesson. Have all the spices in one easy place, like this box, so you can add like 10 of them at the same time. After some time at the stove, we get to the next lesson. Don't take the written recipe too seriously.
1: So really, just, you know, recipe is just like a rough draft, you can experiment. Don't just stick to it, go with your own imagination. I know you will make these at home because a very easy, vegan, gluten-free, and it's it's healthier also, um, mm-hmm. you know, because we added those veggies. Yeah, and I'm excited to try it. Yeah. Nice. And you may want to add a couple of drops of oil around your patty. Okay. Yes. If you happen to go to India, this is a site you will really love to see. The street food vendors, they have their griddles are like round griddles, and you are just waiting badly. Three to five minutes, see? They are getting ready.
2: Now that we've gotten the easier recipes done, we move on to the trickier recipe samosas. I describe them as triangular-shaped, deep-fried, potato-stuffed, greasy, delicious, spicy appetizers that just fill you up with joy.
1: That's the best description of samosa I've ever heard. No, really, it's like I I want my deep-fried samosa. I don't want the oven-baked or air-fried samosa. No, I like my deep-fried ones. Um, So we're cooking the filling, we got all the spices and everything, and we're just heating it up. It looks good. See the color? Mm -hmm. See, When I say you have to engage all your senses when you are cooking, especially Indian cooking, you see all the spices, otherwise potatoes are really bland taste-wise and color-wise also. It's just flat. Mm -hmm. Now it's a nice texture because of the spices, and I'm sure the flavor is good. Oh my gosh, yes, that's delicious. This is the difference between regular uh, cooking and street food. You don't have that tanginess and uh, that you know sharp flavors
0: yeah.
1: in our regular cooking.
6: So, you, so you're right, it is a little strong flavor right now, but but once it gets filled into the dough, mm. it's going to dilute it a little bit. So, it, so it's good, it's a little stronger.
2: Sumit and Monica say that making food together tends to get people feeling free to open up and tell stories about themselves and their lives. Now I see it in action. She talks about cooking for her husband.
1: When I first made samosas, uh, we were in the apartment, and I think it was his birthday, his first birthday together. So he went to office. I had the recipe written down in my diary, And I was not very confident. Uh, They came out fine, and I was waiting for him to come and, you know, give me the feedback and all. I was all by myself and trying to make the perfect samosas first time. And I thought they were good, but I believe that I have improved as I have made them.
2: After a little while, it's time to eat. Monica gets out square metal plates with compartments. They're common in India, and they keep one sauce from spilling into the other. Stack the yogurt on top of the samosas, and then you put the chutney on top of that. And we get our next lesson. You don't pick up a samosa and bite into it like a newcomer. Oh, you See smash the, the samosa oh. with the spoon. Wait, what? Yeah.
6: That. That's what makes it the chaat, right? Now it's the chaat.
2: And then cover it with sauces, including mint and tamarind chutney.
6: It looks amazing.
2: I've,
6: my mom, she never really... It looks much different than normal for some reason. It might have just been since she took a little bit more time, so... Oh, I love samosas. They're the best. Even though they have peas, they're still really good. And the potatoes, like, you can see it's crunchy and all, and this stuff is very crunchy. The is kind of soft, and it's really good.
2: As we fill our plates, I catch up with Monica about the Indian Food Festival she organized this past summer. What did you learn as a result of doing the festival about Indian food in Colorado? That
1: people really want those kind of events in the town. I mean, we had close to 900 people. That just shows that people really want to try Indian food. It was a mix of both, you know, Indian community and non-Indian community. So it's a good sign for Indian food uh, industry here.
2: If you had to just kind of boil down Indian cooking, what do you think you would say is like really specific as compared to other cuisines?
1: Have the right kind of spices, Do not buy curry powder, just have the right kind of spices. Learn about the spices and do not be intimidated and just experiment. You just have to learn a couple of basic techniques and you can go from there. It's really not hard.
2: Yeah. I feel like from today, I feel <laughs> like I would be willing to try it at home just because I think of that whole box of spices that you have. And then if you just like take a spoonful of this one, a spoonful of that one, whatever amount you need. And just once you get that step done, it yeah. seems like it gets a lot easier. Yeah,
6: and Even with the samosas, you can all, always make
2: them and freeze them, right? And, and just fry them when you want them. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how you guys came to meet each other?
1: So yeah, we met online through a matrimony website. I actually sent him um, interest. (laughs) So we started with Yahoo Mail. We were comfortable enough. We switched over to Yahoo Messenger. We chatted and then we graduated to phone
4: calls. (laughs) And
1: then we were comfortable enough, you know, talking on phone. Uh, And then when things looked right, his parents came to meet my family. It's interesting that... I met him after I met his parents. It just happened because he was here in the US and I was in Chandigarh. So his parents came from Delhi to meet me and my family. And they kind of uh, approved of me. And then he booked his tickets, he flew to India. We met, and within 10 days, we were married.
2: So it's just a matter of days between when you met and then got engaged and then got married?
1: We met at a railway station, at the Chandigarh railway station. He came by the train. I came to pick him up. I was 15 minutes late and mm. <laughs> he was waiting there. You know, when when we look back, it sounds so like, how could we do that? You know, mm. meeting somebody at a station and then you, you're getting married to the person <laughs> 10 days later.
6: But, but it is, that's a lot of how Indian marriages are too. And the only difference I would say is that we met on our own accord, at least We got to know each other at least at a mental level for two months, just the conversations and all that.
2: You had worked before you came here as a consultant giving counseling to students who were getting ready to consider going to college or getting a job. And you were doing that when you guys began to communicate over the dating site?
1: Yes, and... Uh, It was hard to wind up that business because it was doing so well. I was the only career counselor available in the entire city Mm. and almost all the good schools, the private schools, they were hiring me. I was working with them and I was doing well. My team was also growing and we um, we were doing really well on that front. But I was open to the idea of going out of the country. And I'm glad I made the switch. I I enjoyed this, all of this, every part of this. I really enjoy. (laughs) I love meeting new people. You know, Emily, they were asking me, do do I know you? I said, no, I don't know you. Uh, I don't know her. So it happens all the time. Sometimes not even a single person in the class is my recurring student. Everybody is new. But it's fun to meet new people who are interested in learning about your own you know culture your cuisine it it tells a lot about them also you know they are open to newer cultures they are more um, they are more ready to accept immigrants like us <laughs> it's very important um, you know for immigrants you know that acceptance thing and when people come to you they come to you with an open mind and I'm never nervous, I'm never anxious to meet new people because I know in back of my mind, I know that, okay, this person wants to learn about my culture.
6: Like she was saying, it's, it helps us be a part of the city, you know. I mean, I have a 9 to 5 job. I mean, it doesn't really connect me with people here. I mean, it connects me with the people I work with, but, you know, it's it's different. So It's not just food you're learning. I mean, and I think you probably experienced that today too. It's like you're learning the entire, it's more of an entire Indian experience. You know, you have the house and you have other stuff and the way we interact. And there's a a lot more than just food.
1: Can you bring that photo, our first picture? Oh, yeah. We were buying engagement rings. That was our first picture together. See?
2: You're not really smiling. (laughs) Did you not have a crush on him yet?
1: (laughs) I don't know. And he missed his train. (laughs) While we were shopping, he missed his train back home.
2: (laughs) What does it mean to you to share these techniques and food with people here in Colorado Springs?
1: It's like sharing part of your culture, you know? When I'm cooking here, I know my mother, his mother, they are still using the same, you know, techniques. They are still following the cooking traditions. So when I'm in a cooking class, I really feel good, I feel great about the fact that I am able to share some part of my culture, even if it is through cuisine. I'm able to share some part of my culture. I feel great about it.
2: Does food help you to connect to the country and family that you left in India?
1: Of course, you know, ask him. When I'm talking to his mom, sometimes we talk longer (laughs) on the phone call because we are talking about food. She will share some recipe or food really connects not just strangers but i think even the our older relations we can bond over food so well we can talk for hours if it is food <laughs> when we were new here we would go to potlucks but the food was so different i would just bring a dish which i know i will eat <laughs> at least i will uh, you know eat and today if I have to bring a dish to an event it will be a conversation starter and so will be other dishes right it's very satisfying and the you know cooking together is fun I don't know about you guys but I was not at all stressed or in a rush at all so that's the fun part of any cooking class and this is one of my favorite foods so (laughs) it was fun cooking with all of you
2: how do you think we did with our, um, with our efforts to make the recipes?
1: Oh, look at Emily. She was like, I don't want to try samosas. I will fail. But she ended up frying seven or eight samosas just on her own. So it was a successful class. If people can make samosas on their own, that's a good class.
2: Well, this has been a really, really fun experience. I am so full right now, and I really enjoyed cooking with you. Thank you so much for having us.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure having you, Elaine, and thank you so much.
2: At the door, Monica gives me a packet of savory pancake mix made from chickpea flour and Indian spices. It's one in a line of products she sells on her website, polka dots and curry. After I leave, I think I'll try making the pancakes. I'll also try the chickpea dish because it seems easy enough. But not the samosas. I can pick them up frozen at the international market. But Monica, I promise, they're deep fried first.
0: See pictures from Elaine Tassi's visit to Monica Selle's kitchen at CPR.org. We'll also link to her website, polka dots, and curry. Still to come, something far less appetizing, tarantulas. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Is your business or organization working on next year's marketing strategy? Are you researching the best ways to reach new customers or donors? With over 550,000 listeners tuning in across the state every week, sponsoring Colorado Public Radio and KRCC is an effective way to share your message with a wide audience. Make sponsoring part of the conversation before your budget is set. Learn about rates and scheduling at CPR.org sponsorship. Tarantula mating season is winding down in southeastern Colorado. At the recent Tarantula Festival in La Junta, KRCC's Shawna Lewis caught up with arachnologist Paula Cushing of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science.
5: How do tarantulas fit into the larger picture of different kinds of spiders here in Colorado? In Colorado, we have these large hairy tarantulas just in the southeastern part of the state. And we have some other mygalomorphs, these tarantula-like spiders, in the western part of the state. But in terms of the big hairies, this is the place to go. Is this region particularly conducive or not conducive to spider life? You know, it's not super conducive to arthropods, which are... Arachnids and insects, et cetera, because we live in uh in this this part of Colorado and most of Colorado is is a semi-desert ecosystem, particularly the front range, and it's a xeric environment. So it's not a hugely species diverse area, no. Is it a safe bet if you see a big hairy spider that it's likely a tarantula? Yeah. Yes, uh, here in this area, in the southeastern part of the state, yes, it's a good bet that especially this time of year in the fall, late summer, early fall, it's a good bet that it's a tarantula. But there are some huge species of wolf spiders that we have north of Colorado Springs, out in the plains, and even I live in the Golden Area, and and I've seen really large uh, wolf spiders there, and even some spiders called fishing spiders that get very, very large, and to the Uh, arachno-neophyte, those big wolf spiders might appear to be tarantulas. But if you look closely, they're not as covered with hair like seedy as our Colorado brown is. Do all spiders have hairy legs? All spiders have hair like seedy, so only mammals have hair. Uh, Spiders have something that looks like hair, but it's seedy. But uh, it's the tarantulas that really have the most beautiful hairy legs, I would say. So they have an unusual mating process. Is that really that different from other spiders? Oh, that's a great question. So all spiders have their own specialized courtship and copulation behavior. And with the tarantulas, they don't have great eyesight. So the males, which I got to say are kind of dumb as dirt. I'm surprised that they can even find females. I've seen them. They just stumble around and hopefully run into one, seems like at random, but poor little boys they, when they do finally encounter a female or get close to her burrow, I think what they can pick up is some sexual pheromones that she's deposited in her silk. So then you can see him get kind of excited and he gets closer and then he'll do some vibratory courtship. But his courtship signals are going to be species specific. So she would be able to tell that those vibrations are from a male of her species. Is climate change having any effect on tarantulas? here in southeastern Colorado? Yeah, we don't really know. The interesting thing is we, there are so few professional arachnologists in the world that we are struggling to get that basic information about population size, population health, uh, species distributions, in order to ask those basic questions about how not only climate change is affecting species, but also how is habitat degradation affecting them? How is urbanization affecting them? So it's it's beyond just climate change. So the, the answer is we don't know yet. But what we suspect might be happening for these tarantulas is we suspect, based purely on anecdotal observations of folks living in this area of Colorado, that their range may be extending northward a little bit. But in terms of is climate change negatively impacting them, we, that we really don't know, which is kind of scary and sad that you know, with vertebrate groups, any vertebrate group, we know what's happening with those populations. But with a lot of these invertebrate groups, and especially the arthropods, the insects, the spiders, we, we just are so far behind the vertebrate biologists because there's not as many of us uh, in order for us to understand how are these perturbations to our world, to our earth, to our planet, really affecting these these species that we share this planet with. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Sean. I appreciate it and I enjoyed it.
0: KRCC's Shauna Lewis speaking with arachnologist Paula Cushing of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And that is Colorado Matters for today. With thanks to a team that gives our show legs Tyler Bender,
4: Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
1: Andrea Dukakis,
5: Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher,
4: Matt Hers, Tom
0: Hess. Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane
5: Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield.
0: And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.